I realized at about 11 o'clock last night that it was Cinco de Mayo. And I didn't, I didn't want to seem like one of those kinds of pastors, so as I was uh, reviewing my sermon and whatnot, I decided to make myself a margarita. That's right. It's quite good. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to prove the fact that you can celebrate Cinco de Mayo and come to church the next day. So here I am. had a great party with myself and my Bible last night, and I'm here. So maybe you had a similar, similar experience. So foreshadowing. It's going to be a great, great conversation today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat, uh, on the ends of the seat near you. You can also Google Acts uh, chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be looking uh, at chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2 in particular today, uh, but it would be nice to be able to look back because we'll kind of look where we're coming from and where we're going, okay? So as you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, say this. I've just been having this thought a lot lately. In fact, Ryan and I were talking about this just early this week. Maybe you've had a similar thought. It just feels like, spiritually speaking, the city of Seattle is, is so far gone uh, to the point where it feels like, is it even worth it? Could it ever come back? Could it ever become a Jesus town again? And this is how the thought goes in my head. I think, I just see what's going on, I just feel the pressures, I just, I just see the trajectory, and I, it feels deep in my soul. The only thing that could turn this thing around is a miracle. Does it feel like that to you? As a pastor in the city, that's what it feels like to me. Uh, but when I say it would take a miracle uh, implied even in, in the thought process there is that, but miracles don't really happen. So Seattle is too far gone. If you're anything like me, that, that, that's how it goes in your head. So uh, I've heard this question a lot. Maybe you've had this question. Why, when I read the Bible, and we'll see this in the book of Acts, do I see so many miracles so many miracles, but yet today in 21st century America, so few miracles. That's all, that's all part of my thinking. God doesn't do miracles like he did in the Bible. Well, I'll say two things about that. First, I think there are actually less miracles than you think in the Bible. Less miracles than you think in the Bible. They're not happening necessarily every day. In fact, there's long seasons of time where there are no miracles. And then the second thing is this, I think there's actually more miracles today than we know about. Of course, when we read, we just finished the Gospel of Mark, we read the life of Jesus, and in the person of Jesus, we see many, many miracles. His, his ministry was full of miracles. And then, then when, we, when we look at the Acts of the Apostle, which is this new series that we've just started, we're going to see many miracles. But it's important to remember in the book of Acts that the book of Acts is not primarily about miracles. And in fact, the life of Jesus is not primarily about miracles. In fact, what miracles always relate to in Scripture 
is an authentication of the power of God working through the people with a message, which we call the message of good news or the gospel. That's always what miracles are about. And so it's so important as we read a really famous and important text in the history of the world, in the story of the Jesus movement today. We're going to look at the beginning, really, of a new age. We have to understand the order of events. This is so important. The very first thing that we'll see is that these people who are filled with the Spirit so that they can go perform powerful acts, before that ever happens, they're believing in the person and the work of Jesus. And they've repented of their old way and turned to the new way, which is faith in Jesus for everything in their life. Then, after that, the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, So I say all this uh, just to make a very important point up front. If we seek miracles for our lives, our lives will end up being flat. But if we seek faith in Jesus, our lives will be full. And guess what? I think we'll experience many miracles along the way. So important to see that as the order of events here. Now having said that, I think miracles today are far more numerous than than we imagine. If we were to be able to collect all the authentic accounts of miracles happening in the world today, I'd bet my prize peacock that we would see more miracles happening today than even during the time of the apostles. We just don't necessarily have access to those accounts. And of course, the Jesus movement has spread far beyond just Jerusalem, where we see it starting here. And I think more miracles are happening today than we could ever imagine. So, when we look at the book of Acts, and we look at this passage today, what, what we need to understand as well uh, is this question. Is the book of Acts descriptive or is, or is it prescriptive? Descriptive meaning this is just what happened, good to know. Or is it prescriptive, this is what always happens, this is normative, this should be happening. And I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> I think it's both descriptive and prescriptive or normative. Uh, But it's important. There's a nuance here. Every saved Christian will receive the Holy Spirit, as we'll see today. That is normative. That is prescriptive. And it always results in a new power to become a witness to the risen Jesus. That always happens. That's normative, prescriptive. Now, what's descriptive is that when the apostles receive the Spirit, we'll see in this passage, they're going to speak in other languages because the Spirit is working through them. That is descriptive. That happened to the apostles, and it may or may not be normative for your own life or in the life of of any Christian. 
but it's not necessarily, that's the only way the power of God works. But the power of God always comes through the Spirit so that you can be a witness. We talked about that last week. And so in our record today, here's what we're going to see. Here's what we're going to witness. We're going to see a miracle which happened 726,000 days ago in which the baptism of the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of Jesus that he sends back to his uh, disciples, leads to an unexplainable power which takes the form of speaking the good news or the gospel message in a language that these speakers had never learned. They'd never taken a class They'd never spoken words in these languages before, but when the Spirit of God comes upon them, they will speak in foreign tongues, okay? So let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 2, okay? Here we go. Now, before we get to to this moment that I'm going to talk about, let's look back at Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, okay? Which says this. Just realized I didn't have my glasses on. Here we go. 4 and 5, chapter 1. And while staying with them, he, that's Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, here, here's what's going on. Uh, Luke has written a gospel. We talked about this last week. You should go back and listen. That, that sort of sets up the socio-historical context for the book of Acts. But Luke, who's the author of Acts, has written a two-part series. Luke, which is the life and times, death and resurrection of Jesus, and then Acts, which is what happens next. Uh, it's the story of the first 30 years of the Jesus movement. And so Jesus has risen from the grave. He's appeared to his disciples, and he says to them, you need to stay here in Jerusalem and wait because, remember what I told you a long time ago, that John the Baptist was baptizing people in water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, what does not many days from now mean? Well, what we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 2 is that this baptism happens on a Jewish holiday known as Pentecost. Pentecost is uh, sort of the Greek transliteration of uh, the Hebrew term, the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the major Jewish holidays. And and people from all over um, the Roman Empire who were Jews would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And that's why what we're going to see is people from all parts of the of the world with different languages are in Jerusalem when this happens. So uh, Pentecost always happened 50 days after Passover, so let's do the math. So right before Jesus was betrayed, right before he was arrested and then crucified, they celebrated the Passover in the upper room. It's where Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, which we um, practice every week here at Sedaris. Uh, that was the Passover. So then he dies, so we've got to take three days off of that. And then, and then what we're going to see uh, right after, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, that for 40 days he sat with his uh, disciples and he taught them, okay? He taught them everything that had just happened through the death and the resurrection. He, he showed them the Old Testament and how everything points to him. So they did that for 40 days. So that leaves us about seven days before this happened. So 
I just thought that's interesting. How long did these people have to wait for this promised Holy Spirit? Well, they only had to wait around seven days. Now, they weren't exactly sure when it was going to happen because when the Spirit comes, it is a surprise. That's how God likes to do it. So, seven days of waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Let's look again at verse 8, because this is going to be sort of the thesis of the entire book of Acts. We talked about this last week. So when the baptism happens, what's going on? Verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Why do we need the baptism of the Spirit? Why do we need to be filled with the Spirit of God? Because we need His power to go be witnesses. We talked about this last week, and and I just want to refresh our memory because it's so important to understanding uh, how Ryan and I will, will preach through the book of Acts, is that Jesus will say to His uh, apostles, His disciples, you are witnesses, meaning You didn't have any choice in the matter. You saw the things that I did, that I taught, the miracles I performed. You saw me die, and you've seen me now resurrected, and you will see me ascend into heaven. You are witnesses of these things. That's the first criteria. The second criteria is that you will be witnesses, which means everything that you've seen and understood By the Spirit of God, you will now need to go and be witnesses of those things, tell other people, live a life that is in its totality a witness to the power and the truth of the gospel. Because you are witnesses, you must be witnesses. And it's all by the power of the Spirit of God. And so what we see, and and we won't spend much time in this, Uh, But at the end of chapter 1, we see that because Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus, it left one spot open on the roster of 12 disciples, so they add a disciple, and uh, what they say, um, who should we replace Judas with? And they put up two candidates, and the candidates for this office had to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry to his death, to his resurrection, and to ascension. That was critical because you have to witness the things so that you can be a witness. And so they choose um, a cat named Matthias, and he becomes the 12th apostle. And, 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 and right after that, we see what's happened with Pentecost. Now, before we read the account of Pentecost... I want, you to, I want you just to see the importance of they had all repented and believed. And it actually says there's about 120 of them. So there's the apostles, but then another group of men and women who are also disciples of Jesus who have repented and believed the, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has died for their sin, that he is Lord and Messiah. So 120 of them waiting, not knowing exactly when they'll receive the power to go be witnesses. You see, they don't do anything until the Spirit of God comes and gives them power 
to do so. And so they're all gathered. It says that they're gathered in somebody's house celebrating Pentecost. Not sure when this some days from now is going to be. And they're probably in some sort of semi-private courtyard because what we're going to see happen is pretty loud. You call it a holy commotion. It's public enough that people then come and say, what was that? They come and they see and then the witnessing begins. Okay, so here we go. That is the background as we now read this amazing historical account. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven who had come in for this festival. And at this sound of the rushing wind, it was loud enough that people heard, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. They couldn't explain it. What was going on? They were all speaking in other languages than they knew. Now what's important here is that in this example, uh, the 120 that were gathered, the apostles and uh, the others who were waiting for this promised spirit, they are speaking in languages that are, that are understandable by human beings. So they're, so they're speaking in real languages. You're going to have to go to other parts of the Bible to hear about what's called sort of angelic languages, or you maybe heard speaking in tongues. Uh, here, at least, speaking in tongues means speaking in a language that hey, had somebody written down what they were saying, you could go and translate that uh, in the Google app, which started back in the day. So you could do that. So these were native languages, and, and people were hearing it, uh, hearing the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own language. Okay? And it was crazy. And people were asking, what does this mean? How is this possible? How could it be? And others were saying, look at them all, they're drunk. It's only 9 a.m., Peter will tell us, and everybody's drunk. These crazy Jesus people. Okay, so now, now comes the point in the sermon where I try to explain to you exactly what's happening. 
Well, to be honest, I can't. I don't know what tongues of fire look like. I've never seen them. I'm not sure what it sounded like or how it happened. But apparently it was loud enough that people heard it happening and came from other parts of the city to see what was going on. So what do you do then if you can't explain it? Well, it's often what we've been talking about in the book of Acts is all you can do is witness to it. This happened. And the question is, does this still happen? And at this point in the proceedings, I would like to call a witness. We talked about it last week. Can I get a witness? Has anyone experienced this very thing? We need to see if God's still working in our world. Can I get a witness? Oh, we have a witness. Ryan, come on up here. Come to the witness box. Go ahead. Sit right here. Wow. You really held that out for a second there. I didn't know if I was going to get a witness. Okay. So I've asked Ryan. to let anybody else witness, you know. Yeah. We're not. Uh, Can I sit or? I'll sit. Yeah, this is yeah, a witness box, so okay. please sit. The judge will stand. <laughs> this was planned, but... <laughs> Because we're talking about witnessing, we thought, let's do that together. Let's witness. And I was prepping for this, and I was telling Ryan what I was going to talk about this week, and, and I was like, Ryan, I've actually never experienced this, so I, I can't really explain it. And he's like, oh, I experienced this. And I said, what? I said, can I get a witness? So yeah. can I get a witness? Tell me what happened to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good way to term it, uh, something that happened to me is how I... I uh how I experienced it. Um, and I think what's really great about this whole witness thing, I'll say first, is that it's just, this isn't something very complicated. Being a witness is just a recounting of events, and that's all I'm going to do for you guys. Because <laughs> even there's some parts that I can't even explain, but I'm just going to recount the event. Um, so uh, I, I spent a summer working with the local church in Kenya, and part of that work was actually out in the bush uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus. And um, one day, I, I was with my translator and dropped my translator off at their house, and then I started walking back to our, our huts. And, um, and some, some, uh, I was walking along the, uh, along the road, and a guy and his wife, they pulled me into his house. And uh, Kenyan is a, a tribal, or Kenya is a, a tribal country, and so there's like 40-some languages that are spoken in, in Kenya. I'm not sure which tribe he was in, uh, but it was very clear that uh, there's a huge language barrier there, and <laughs> we weren't going to understand each other. And, uh, but something just came over me, and I started talking, and I said two or three sentences to this guy, and I didn't know what I said. I'd never heard it before, uh, but his face lit up, and he had clearly understood what I had said. And to that, I was really just surprised, and he responded to me, and I just looked at him, <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know what's taking place here. Um, and then, he, then it became clear that I was dumbfounded. And he actually got down on his knees in front of me. And so I was like, this is very strange. I've never experienced this before. Uh, so I just did, uh, just did what I thought I should do. And I put my hand on his shoulder. And I prayed for him. And I'm not sure what language I prayed in at that point in time. Um, 
And it was, it was a crazy, I've never felt the Holy Spirit like I have in that moment. It was a very, a very intense, overwhelming feeling in time. And uh, then uh, I got done, I said amen, he said amen, and uh, we proceeded to eat sweet potatoes over an awkward, silent meal. <laughs> that's what it was, they served me some sweet potatoes. So, uh, yeah, that's my witness, there you go. Thanks, Ryan, yeah. The witness may step down. And that's how it goes. I'm not going to try to explain to you Ryan's experience. He literally just witnessed to something that happened to him that he can't explain. A power came over him. He spoke in a language other than his own in which somebody heard it as their own language. And he was blessed by sweet potatoes. So it always, that's in the text here. Just got to keep reading. Always sweet potatoes um, of some kind. So... We're going to try to do that where, where it's applicable in each of the following sermons. So uh, we're going to need some participation. Um, we'll try to tell you what we're going to be talking about next week. And if you have a story of the power of God working through one of these ways in which it works in the book of Acts, we would love for you to come after the service, find us. So find me or Ryan after the service say, I'd be open to doing what Ryan just did, which is literally just recounting the experience of the Holy Spirit pouring out his power through you or uh, in your midst. It doesn't have to necessarily be through you, but it could be something that you witnessed through somebody else. And so next week, we'll be talking about the power of preaching. So if anybody's had an experience where may maybe, maybe you've been sitting in church your whole life, and then all of a sudden, through one sermon, it's like the lights went on, and you felt the power of God come over you. If you've had that experience, come find me or Ryan uh, if you'd feel comfortable being a witness next week. Okay? So I can't explain it. This literally happened, and it was wild, and it was hard to understand, and people interpreted it in a number of ways. It's descriptive in that this happened, and it's prescriptive in that I think it can happen again. And we saw with Ryan that it has for him. But it's not like every single person who experiences the Holy Spirit will speak a foreign language or speak in tongues or do any of the things that we will see happening in the book of Acts. But it can happen, and clearly it continues to happen. But it's only one. It's only one. But as we go, here's what I want you to always see. Anytime the power of God comes upon someone, works through them in power, there is something that is normative that happens each and every time, and that's this. Look at what they were saying when they were speaking in tongues. They were speaking of, verse 11, the mighty works of God. Whenever the power of God comes and flows through human beings, it's always, always to take forward the good news, the gospel of the mighty works of God. It's always for the edification of either God's people or for an explanation of who God is and a saving work through Jesus to those outside of the people of God. That is what you will see. There's never just for the fun of it. There's never just to show off. There's never just 
to talk about philosophy or psychology or current affairs in other languages. It's always to explain the mighty works of God. That's one of the ways you know that it's actually God working and not some other. If, if, if the power is speaking of the crucified Jesus risen from the dead, that's how you know that God's involved, okay? So you might be thinking to yourself at this point, I've never experienced this, this kind of power. Or you might be saying, it's been a long while since I've experienced a feeling of being filled by the Spirit. Now let me give you some encouraging news here. I think this is often the pattern with which God works in individuals, within churches even, within nations, within his world. And I think the reason why it seems maybe that there's times of drought or seasons of I haven't experienced the God is that maybe what God is doing is he's prepping the stage for the drama to begin. He's prepping the stage for the drama to begin. Let me explain to you how long God was prepping the stage for this particular drama. It seems when you study the history of Israel and you look at the account of the revelation of God that we have recorded for us in Scripture, that it was several hundred years of drought between when we saw the Spirit of God moving in Israel and and this moment. The very final book of the Bible was written about 500 years before these events, which meant that, that people were not seeing the Spirit of God work through individuals to prophesy. There seems to be a drought of visions and revelations and dreams. And then we start to see just, lit, just, just some water coming up through the soil. And we see at the beginning of, of the Jesus story, before Jesus was even born, his uncle, Zacharias, has a vision. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, sees an angel. Joseph has a dream. Elizabeth, the aunt of Mary, feels John the Baptist leap in her womb when, when Mary comes close, Jesus being um, within the Virgin Mary. The shepherds and the wise men experience visions of God. And then, of course, we see Jesus, miracles, and, of course, the resurrection. And these are all just little gurglings of water that maybe the Spirit of God, and probably the Spirit of God is coming back. But it's always isolated to individuals. And then, with the stage set, the drama of God unfolds right here at Pentecost. And the drought ends. And Ryan will talk about this next week because Peter will explain it. The prophecies of the Spirit of God falling not on just individuals as it had in the Old Testament, but on all of God's people happens right here at Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. So why does God do this? Why does he seem to wait? Why doesn't he just pour it out right away? Well, I think the stage needs to be cleared because distractions need to be cleared so that when God shows up, we see it for what it is. We see it for what it is. 
So God might be doing this in your life. He might be clearing the distractions out of your life because he's about to give you a filling of the Holy Spirit. I met my wife this way, Allie. It was almost like for both of us, if you'd ask her, she'd say the same thing as it was for me. It almost like God was clearing out from our mind e- even the idea, which had, had sometimes been distractions of finding uh, our spouse. We met at a moment where it felt like we weren't even thinking about any of that stuff. And I still remember when I walked in and, and I started talking to my wife in a coffee shop to explain to her about the Consider concert, which we were doing here in Seattle. I was living in Dallas at the time. I walked into a coffee shop. I'd just gotten her email from a friend that said she was well-connected in the city, and so I was really just using her for her connections. And I walk in. Every Distractions were cleared in my life. I was so laser-focused on the mission of God, and then all of a sudden, God dropped a bomb on me. That's why I always say my wife is the bomb, because she... It was like like literally something hit me. I remember. I used to never tell, uh, particularly my mother (laughs) and my sister, about uh, women that I was maybe interested in or dating until like a couple months after we'd been dating because they'd always get excited about it and all this stuff. So I didn't tell them. I came home that night, and I told my mother and my sister that something happened, and I couldn't explain it. God dropped the alley bomb on me. Could call it the A-bomb. Boom. Oh. Come on. I didn't even write that down. That just came to me. You don't think the Spirit of God works? That's a great joke. Somebody write that down. Okay. Somebody tell Allie Allie I said that. She's working today. So um, sometimes he's clearing the stage for you, and you're saying, where is God? Why isn't he here? Allow him to clear the stage and ask him to fill you up with his spirit. For the disciples, the craziness of this moment, the power of this moment was, uh, was magnified because they had nothing to show for themselves up until this point of their life. There was nothing impressive. There was, there was everything ordinary about these men. So maybe you feel unimpressive. Maybe you feel like you're in a completely unremarkable season of your life. Watch out. If you're willing, if you're asking, if you're waiting on the Lord, he might send you a powerful filling of the Spirit. Will you receive it? He just might be wanting to do that so that he can get all the glory for your good. It's always good that God gets the glory and we don't take it for ourselves. So how do you know? How do you know if you have experienced something similar to what we see in Acts chapter 2? How do you know that the Spirit of God has fallen upon you, that you've been filled up by Him? Well, let me say this, because this is important. It doesn't just happen once. We believe, we repent, we believe the gospel, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and everyone who has authentically, truly done that will receive a filling of the Holy Spirit. It happens the first time, it'll happen a second time, a third time, a 60th time. 
It's like riding the waves in, in Hawaii. I remember we were just over there visiting, and uh, we were just watching the surfers, you know? And surfing's just such an interesting uh, sport because it's a lot of waiting around for the next wave to come. And you'd see the really good surfers, they know how to prepare themselves for the next wave. And then you'd see the not-so-good surfers, they're always missing the wave. But this is how the Spirit of God will come into your life. There'll be seasons of sort of lulls, and then powerfully He will move in your life. It can happen as many times as God wants to do it, as you are willing to receive it. A great pastor theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, explained it this way. I think it's one of the best ways to explain what this feeling feels like, what, what this experience is like. He explains it this way. He says, um, being a Christian is like this. It's like uh, being a small child and having your father hold your hand. And you know he's there, but he's just holding your hand. And you're walking through the park, for instance, and he says, and every once in a while, the father will sweep up the son and grab him, and joy fills the child, laughter fills, his eyes light up. I've seen this with my son Grayson, where I'm just walking, it's an ordinary day, and then, and then I'll sweep him up, and joy exudes from him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that's what it's like to be a Christian a lot of ordinary hand-holding, then, then all of a sudden it's like you're swept up off the ground, like you're floating. Here's how he explains it. as a quote. It's as if the fuses of love are so overloaded, they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he hasn't been thinking about all the time, but that pops up every now and then, are now gone. And in that place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know, that you know, that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in all the world. And as to walk down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, my father loves me, my father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father. That's what it's like. It's a very conscious experience. It's not a subconscious. It's not a subconscious experience of just like, well, I know deep down somewhere. It's a very conscious experience. And it always surrounds around this idea of feeling loved. My life, I've had that in my life. There's been seasons of just pretty normal, then all of a sudden it's like God sweeps me up off my feet. It's a conscious experience of feeling loved. Now what do you do when you feel the filling of the Holy Spirit in a new and profound way? Well, don't hold it in. Can I say that again? Don't hold it in. Let it out. The scriptures call this quenching the spirit when you hold it in. And really all you have to do is let it out. So there's a couple ways to quench the spirit, which is to not let it out. We can deny the working of the spirit. So we can hear a story like Ryan's, for instance, and we can say, that, that didn't happen. He was mistaken. God doesn't work like that. 
God only works through, you know, reading our Bible in the morning, going to church. That's the only way he works. He only works through the mind. I know that. Don't, don't quench the spirit. When that happens, celebrate. It may or may not happen to you, but you celebrate it when you hear about it. The second way, and anybody of us can do that, let the fruits of the Spirit free. When you feel that swelling up, when I sweep Grayson off of his feet, if he just got up there and be like, Dad, don't make me smile, that's quenching the Spirit. Don't hold in your emotions. So if you experience that joy, smile. If you experience that love, sing. Don't hold it in. There, this is, of course, relative, okay? Not everybody has to be as emotional as me. Not everybody has to be as gregarious uh, as Augusta. Nobody has to be anybody but themselves, but when the Spirit of God fills you, allow it to move you beyond your normal state. Ride the wave. <laughs> Everybody should smile once in a while. Everybody should sing walking down the street occasionally, some more than others. Me and my dad, we sing a lot. Turns out Grayson loves to sing. We find him at about 11 o'clock at night singing Joy to the World in his room. <laughs> Go to bed. No. He's got the spirit. What is he going to do? I hope he does. Yeah, we're praying for it. Okay, so when you see sin and brokenness in the world, weep. That means God's given you, through the Spirit, the power to see the depths of brokenness in his world, and he wants you to weep with him. When you see uh, unexpectedly a need arise, or you feel burning up within you a desire to help, actually go help. Don't think your way out of it. Go help. Go help. Be filled with compassion that comes through a filling of the Spirit. So I want you to turn with me real quick. If you've got your Bibles, uh, it's about this much through your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, okay? So you're going to turn to the right uh, a few pages. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. It's going to give us a really helpful understanding of how this happens in the continued life of the church and of Christians, okay? Ephesians 5, uh, verse 18 says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. We'll learn about the Apostle Paul uh, in the second half of Acts. He writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what have you seen now twice? You see it in Acts 2. Half of the people think they're drunk, and the other half are amazed by the wonders of God. Paul's saying, you know what? It often is the case. Being drunk and being filled with the Spirit are very similar experiences. He's saying, but don't be drunk. That sort of artificial 
boldness. Go get real boldness. So um, I told my friend and Rumi, Lax, she lives in our basement, uh, by her own volition. We haven't <laughs> forced her down there. Some people wonder, whoa, you've got somebody locked in your basement. No, it's very nice, actually. You should visit her. It's a very nice place. Um, I told her I was going to tell this story, so I'll tell it. So I got her permission. Uh, one day, we're playing Sunday morning volleyball. We always play, in the summers, we always play volleyball here at Sedaris, and it's 10 a.m. in the morning, and <laughs> Lex was actually watching Grayson and had brought Grayson, but she was also coming to play volleyball, and uh, she comes up, and she is full of excitement and joy, and she's ranting things, and I can't, what, can, you know, I was like a little bit out of control, and I'm like, what's going, <laughs> going on, Lex? And I pull her aside and say, Lex, Lex, did you have a good night last night? Are you still drunk? <laughs> And Lex says to me, I'm not drunk, I'm full of the Spirit. Turns out she wasn't drunk at all. In fact, when Lex is filled with the Spirit, and volleyball does this to her, she just seems like she has the kind of energy you might see at a dance club. And it's one of the things I love about her. Often, she's filled by the listening of, to music, she's filled with the Spirit. Now, I've also had experiences, particularly in college, I lived in a fraternity, in which I would run into some of, uh, some of my, uh, we called them brothers too, but in a different sense than the Christian sense, uh, some of my fraternity brothers, and we'd see them at 9 a.m., 10 a.m. in the morning, and they'd be doing the same thing Lex would be doing, full of excitement, full of joy, and you'd get close enough to them, and you could smell them a little bit, and you were like, are you still drunk? And sure enough, the answer is yes, they're still drunk from the night before. But it looks very, very similar. And the Apostle Paul is saying that right here. Being drunk, which you might have some friends that have been drunk before, is very similar to being filled with the Spirit. Okay? And here's what it looks like. You just start singing uncontrollably. Songs pop into your head. You sing out loud. You have no volume control. You're just singing spiritual songs. You're singing melodies to the Lord. You just start thanking everybody. Have you, have you ever had this experience <laughs> with, you know, those friends that you know who have been drunk? When they're just at the bar thanking everybody, people that they haven't even met? Oh, gosh, what a great night. This is a great night, Cinco de Mayo. This is so much fun. Thanks for being here. And you're like, I have no idea who you are. But you're welcome. It's very similar. You can become more emotional in either state. You become unencumbered. You don't overthink the consequences. And all of this leads you to a kind of boldness that lives in the moment. And when you have the Spirit, instead of drunkenness, it makes you more conscious of God and less conscious of yourself. And so you can do anything. You can speak to anybody about the gospel. You can go into any room and feel the confidence. You can stand before rulers and authorities in the courtroom and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, even if it means your death. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. This doesn't just happen once. It happens again and again and again, that they act 
in bold ways, not overthinking the consequences because of the assurance that they have that their Father loves them, that the promises of Jesus are true, that there's nothing, nothing sweeter in the world than knowing him, being saved by him. I want us all to be full of the Spirit. I want us all to experience this God consciousness as we remove self-consciousness. Because when that happens, the world literally changes for the better. And so we can ask that question. Can, can the city of Seattle ever experience a comeback? Can, can we ever experience something like this in Seattle? Maybe there's waves individually that we experience the coming back of God in our own lives. Maybe we experience the waves of God coming back corporately as a, as a, as a church. But can this happen nationally? Can this happen in our city, citywide? I think the answer is yes. I think it can. And I was reading this week, and I came upon, almost just stumbled upon it. I wasn't actually looking for it. But just an account of what's known as the First Great Awakening. And it happened in a town called Northampton, Massachusetts, in 1735, just, just for some context, the Declaration of Independence was, was signed in 1776, so it's before that, and we have here accounted for us the coming of the Spirit, which actually preceded the coming of freedom to the colonies. And Jonathan Edwards was one, one of uh, the main leaders of the First Great Awakening, and he wrote an account which he would call his witness to the things that the Spirit of God did in his small little town. His town was probably about 1,500 people at the time, just to give you some context for some of the numbers he's going to throw out. 1,500 people in his town. And I'm going to read for a second, so pay close attention. This is marvelous. This is a marvelous witness to the things that the Spirit can do. He says this, Just after my grandfather's death, his grandfather was a minister as well. It seemed to, to be a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. Licentiousness for some years greatly prevailed among the youth of the town. There were many of them very much addicted to night walking. <laughs> What's that mean? Which means <laughs> frequenting the tavern and lewd practices, wherein some, by their example, exceedingly corrupted others. It was their manner, very frequently, to get together in conventions of both sexes for mirth and jollity, which they called frolics. And they would often spend the greater part of the night in them without regard to any order in the families they belonged to. There had also long prevailed in the town a spirit of contention between two parties, in which they had for many years been divided, by which they maintained a jealousy one of the other, and they were prepared to oppose one another in all public affairs. Sounding familiar? And then it was, in the later part of December, that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work amongst us, 
And there were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were, to all appearances, savingly converted, and some of them wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. Particularly, listen close, I was surprised with the relation of a young woman who had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. Translation, party girls in the whole town. When she came to me, I had never heard that she was become in any wise, in any wise serious um, conversation. But as I had conversation with her, it appeared to me that what she gave an account of was a glorious work of God's infinite power and sovereign grace, and that God had given her a new heart, truly broken and sanctified. I could not then doubt of it, and having seen it, much in my acquaintance with her, since confirms it. Though the work was glorious, yet I was filled with concern about the effects that it would have upon others. I was ready to, con to conclude, though too harshly, that some would be hardened by it in the carelessness and looseness of life, and would take occasion from it to open their mouths in reproaches of religion. But the event was the reverse, to a wonderful degree. God made it, I suppose, the greatest occasion of awakening to others any, uh, of any things that, they ever, that ever came to pass in the town. I have had abundant opportunity to know the effect it had by my private conversation with many. The news of it seemed to almost uh, like a flash of lightning came upon the hearts of young people all over the town and upon many others. Those persons amongst us who used to be farthest from seriousness and that seemed greatly... Uh, uh, Sorry, sorry, the furthest from seriousness and that I most feared would make an ill improvement of it seemed greatly to be awakened with it. Many went to talk with her concerning what she had been met with and what appeared is, uh, in her seemed to be the satisfaction of all that did so. Presently upon this, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world came universally in all parts of the town. And among all persons of all degrees and all ages, the noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only, unless so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. Other discourse than the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. The mind of people were wonderfully taken off from this world, and it was treated amongst us as a thing of very little consequence. The temptation now seems to lie on that, on that hand, to neglect worldly affairs too much and to spend too much time in the immediate exercise of religion. But although people did not ordinarily neglect their worldly business, yet religion was with all sorts the great concern, and the world was a thing only by and by. The only thing in the view was to get the kingdom of heaven, and everyone appeared pressing into it. The engagedness of the heart in this great concern could not be hid. It appeared in their very countenance. All would eagerly lay hold of the opportunities for their souls and were wont very often to meet together in private houses for religious purposes. 
They were, there was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, and those who were the most disposed to think and speak slightly of vital and ex- experimental religion, were now generally subject to the great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in the most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, flock by to Jesus Christ from day to day. For many months together might be evident instances of sinners brought out of darkness into marvelous light and delivered out of a horrible pit and from the miry clay and set upon a rock with a new song of praise in their, God, uh, in their mouths for God. This work of God was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in our town so that in the spring and summer following, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love or joy, and yet so full of distress. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought unto them, parents rejoicing over their children and newborns, and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. Our public, this is my favorite part. Their public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, everyone earnestly intent on public worship. And this is the best part. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. Thanks for noticing. As they came from his mouth. And the assembly uh, uh, in general were from time to time in tears while the word, word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow, others in distress over their lack of salvation and others concerned for the souls of their neighbors. It has been observable that there um, has been scarce any part of divine worship where good men amongst us have had grace so drawn forth and their hearts so lifted up in the ways of God as in singing his praises. People were singing like never before. Now, they were evidently unusual elevations of heart and voice which made the duty pleasant indeed. And moreover, our young people, when they met, were wont to spend time in talking of the excellencies and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God, his glorious work in conversion, the truth and the certainty of the great things of God's word, the sweetness of the views of his perfection. And this is so interesting. And even at weddings... There was now no discourse of anything but religion and no appearance of anything but spiritual mirth. Here's what he's saying. Most people would just go to weddings to get drunk. And now at weddings, people are talking about God. And then he goes on to say that this awakening in his own town spread from town to town and he lists... uh, several towns and the whole county was filled and as we know the story the whole country all the colonies were filled by this great awakening that began in in part right here in this tiny little town but in every place he says God brought saving blessings with him and his word attended with his spirit and returned not void this seems to have been a very extraordinary dispensation of providence God has in many respects gone out and much beyond his usual and ordinary way. The work in this town 
and some others about us has been extraordinary on account of the universality of it, affecting all sorts of sober and vicious, high and low, rich and poor, wise and unwise, young people, old men, young children. It was, if you study the Great Awakening, incredibly diverse whites and blacks and people of all background and socioeconomic class. It knew no distinction. The Spirit of God moved, and he goes on to say, Maybe as many as 300 souls in a town of 1,500 were saved in these three months. And then he goes on to say, very unusually, there were as many men converted as women. And then he goes on to say, it appears that even a rate of four persons per day or 30 per week were coming into a saving relationship with Jesus when God so remarkably took the work into his own hands. And then he goes on to say, I get that you might hear this and, and not believe it, but I saw it with my own eyes. I thought I might declare to you, because it's my duty, this amazing work. Because it had nothing to do with me, but God gets the credit for his own work. This is the beginnings of the Great Awakening. And it reached its heights in the 40s and 50s of the 1800s. Benjamin Franklin, who himself was a skeptic, said this, It seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so that one could not even walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung on every street. It was, I believe, what united the colonies to see that you could access God beyond the controlled realm of the Anglican Church, and they saw what if it could be this way in self-governing ourselves, which of course led uh, to the democracy we now have in the United States. And what gospel did they preach as the Great Awakening was happening? Ryan will talk about this next week. It was the historic Orthodox gospel that we are sinners and God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel they preached. They didn't have to change the gospel. They didn't have to water it down. They didn't have to focus only on the good and not on, on the hard parts of the gospel. They preached the full gospel, and because the Spirit of God fell upon that place, our country was changed, the world was changed, we are changed. I believe that same sort of Holy Spirit revitalization can happen here in Seattle. Believe it or not, the entire country was 750,000 people at this time. Guess what the size of Seattle is? 750,000. We can have an awakening right here in Seattle if we would pray that the Spirit of God, starting with us, would fall on this place, fill us up so that we might live bold lives that witness to the power and the reality of the risen Jesus Christ, who has died to save us from our sin, who has risen again to give us new life in the Spirit. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for a great awakening, both in our own lives, God, that if we have had a series of, of dryness, that we feel that you are far, God, that you would sweep us up off of our feet, that we would know that we are loved, that we would feel loved by you, and that when we experience that filling, God, that we would not quench the spirit, that we would go out and proclaim the gospel in word and in deed, and that we would be changed by the power 
that now lives inside of us. God, we know that when we repent and believe that you give us your Holy Spirit, that you never let go of our hand again. But we pray for these mighty fillings. We pray for an awakening in our city. We pray, God, that one day, 270 years later, someone might say of Seattle, Washington, that that place was dull, that they were far from God, but that something happened through the preaching of the gospel, through the falling of the Spirit, that we would be a witness to those neighborhoods and cities around us, and that from this place, God, you would change our nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.